Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Coasting Bohemia. This story ventures through several eras as we closely look at the life and culture that belonged to each of them. Published in 1914, this book was written by J. Commons Carr. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a review during the week. Your ongoing support is greatly appreciated and is what helps me bring out more episodes for you. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, Please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you're a regular listener of the show and would like to say thank you, a great way to support the show is to become a Patreon or sponsor at boytosleep.com. I'm grateful for everybody who continues to sponsor the show with a financial contribution regardless of how big or small that may be. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Bohemia past and present. The papers which compose this volume make no claim to any sort of ordered plan in their composition. They reflect in some measure the varied activities of a life that has been passed in close association with more than one of the arts, and therein lies their sole title to so much of coherence as they may be found to possess. Lord Beaconsfield once defined critics as men who had failed in art. The reproach, however, is not always deserved, for youth is often confident in its judgment of others at a time when it is still too timorous to make any adventure of its own. For myself... I may confess that I had adopted the calling of a critic long before I had found the courage to make even the most modest incursion into the fields of authorship. My first essays in journalism, made at a time when I was still a student at the bar, were chiefly concerned with the art of painting, and I look back now with feelings almost of dismay at the spirit of reckless assurance 
in which I then assumed to measure and appraise the achievement of contemporary masters. A little later in my career, I was brought into still closer contact with the art of the theatre, and in both these worlds, as well as in that of literature itself, I was fortunate in the formation of many valued and enduring friendships which have enabled me, in such of the following chapters, as bear a distinctively biographical character, to record my personal impressions of some of the notable figures in the literature and arts of the later Victorian era. The reader who accompanies me in my voyage along the shores of the Bohemia of that time will quickly realise that it is not quite the Bohemia of today. Indeed, since Shakespeare first boldly conceded to the kingdom a seaboard, each succeeding age, and almost every generation, has claimed the liberty to refashion this enchanted country in accordance with its own ideals. The coastline has been recharted by every voyager who has newly cruised upon its encompassing seas, and in recent days its boundaries have been enlarged by the occasional incursions of society, which has lately condescended to include the concerns of art within the sphere of its patronage. But, although no longer retaining its old outlines upon the map, there is enough of continuity in the character of the inhabitants and in the subjects of their preoccupation to render a brief survey of earlier conditions of something more than merely archaeological interest. If much has been gained, something also has been lost, and the traveller who survives to set down the experiences of that earlier time may perhaps be pardoned if he cannot always accept the changes which have transformed the face of the country or modified the mental attitude of its citizens as improvements upon the prospect that first dawned upon his vision forty years ago. I read the other day a confident pronouncement made by one of the apostles of the more modern spirit which gave me the measure of the revolution that has been affected in all that concerns our judgment upon matters of art. Art declared this authority cannot stop the moment it rests and repeats itself or imitates the past, it dies. There is here no faltering or uncertainty in the assertion of those principles of faith and criticism which are embodied in the newer gospel, and it took me a little time to steady myself in the face of declaration which seemed to overturn the settled convictions of a lifetime. But after much pondering, my courage returned. I perceived that apart from the underlying truism, 
that life implies movement and that art, as its image, must share its vitality, there is nothing here that is not highly disputable or wholly false. Art indeed never stops, but it does not always go forward. The movement perceptible at every stage of its history has been as often retrograde as progressive, and although it can never repeat itself, there have been again and again long seasons of rest, when after a period of great productivity, the land which has yielded so rich a harvest lies fallow. But the final clause of the proposition, the imitation of the past heralds approaching dissolution, is demonstrably untrue of every great epoch of artistic activity. A fearless spirit of imitation, born of the worship yielded to the achievements of an earlier time, may, on the contrary, be claimed as the hallmark of genius, and is indeed most frankly confessed in the work of men of unchallenged supremacy. Raphael exhibited neither shame nor fear in the frank reliance of his youth upon the example of Perugino, the painting of Titian, with an equal candour, confesses the extent of his debt to Giovanni Bellini and Tintoret, who certainly could not be cited as a man deficient in the spirit of independence, made it his boast that he combined the design of Michelangelo with the colouring of Titian, while of Michelangelo himself we have it on record that in one of his earlier efforts as a sculptor, a deliberate imitation of the antique carried him near to the confines of forgery. And when we pass from individuals to the epoch which produced them, was not the main impulse which governed the movement of the Renaissance inspired by a renewed sense of the beauty that was left resident in the surviving examples of the art of the antique world. And all later time yields a similar experience. That newly born spirit in modern painting, associated with what is known as the pre-Raphaelite movement, rested upon the untiring effort of its professors to recapture the forgotten or neglected qualities of the painting of an earlier time, not indeed of the time which was its immediate forerunner, but of that still younger day when by simple means, and with technical resources not yet assured, the earlier painters of Italy sought to interpret the beauty they found in nature. The spirit of imitation conscious and unabashed, was of the very lifeblood of the movement, and it was in their devotion to that period of Italian painting which preceded the crowning glory of the Renaissance that the artists whose work constitutes the most important contribution 
to the painting of modern Europe were led to a stricter veracity in the rendering of the facts in nature which they sought to interpret. But the men who laboured in that day were not greatly affected by the declared ambitions of the present generation. Originality had not yet been accepted as the cardinal virtue in any of the fields of imaginative production, and the illusion of progress which may be said to rank as the special vice of the moment found no place in the teaching of the time. Thinking over this widely desired and much vaunted quality of originality in art, I was minded to turn to old Samuel Johnson to discover what particular meaning was then attached to a term that is now in such constant use. But my curiosity was baffled, for I discovered to my disappointment that this much treasured word finds no place at all in the pages of his dictionary. The world is therefore free to conjecture in what way, if he were living at this hour, that sane and virile intelligence might have sought to describe it. As applied to matters of art, whether literary or pictorial, he would perhaps have been tempted to define it as a word in vulgar use employed to indicate a vulgar ambition. But without burdening the great lexicographer with views which the existences of the time did not provoke him to express, this at least may be confidently affirmed that the pursuit of whatever virtue the word implies can have no place in the conscious equipment of any great artist. Certainly it was unknown or unregarded in every great epoch of the past. It is impossible to think of even the least of the mighty race of Florentine painters from Giotto to Michelangelo sparring one foolish moment from the eager intentness of their labour to ponder whether the judgment of aftertime should hail their work as original. That work, in common with all else that is produced in obedience to the impulse which is constantly shaping the beauties of the outer world till they are tuned into harmony with a spirit resident in the breast of the artist, had no need of any spur to production, beyond that which is provided by a reverent love and an unceasing devotion, and it survives to prove, if proof were needed, that this boasted attribute of originality, though it may fitly find a place in the epitaph upon an artist's tomb, never since the world began formed any part in the impulse that governed the work of his hand. The undue importance now assigned to this coveted quality of originality is partly the outcome of the illusion to which I have already referred.
that art is in its nature progressive and is in fact constantly and steadily progressing. It must be obvious, however, to anyone who has followed the fortunes of the imaginative spirit in the past, that history affords no warrant for any such pretension. In whatever field of artistic industry we choose to enter, in the world of letters no less than the world of art, strictly so called the testimony of the ages bears witness to the fact that the sense of restless and unceasing movement is not always accompanied by any real advancement. Fate has scattered over the centuries with impartial indifference to the onward march of time those signal examples of individual genius which mark for us the summit of human invention. No one supposes that Dryden was a greater dramatist than Shakespeare because he came later. No one would be so foolish as to suggest that a comparison between Lycidas and Adonius can be decided by reference to the historical position of their authors. And yet it is not difficult to understand how in our modern day this illusion of progress has fastened itself upon the judgment and consideration of the things of art. The rapid strides made by science during the last 50 or 60 years, yielding at every step some new discovery to arrest the admiration of a wandering world, has not unnaturally bred an inappropriate spirit of rivalry in the minds of men whose mission it was to deal with the widely divergent problems of the imagination. Indeed, it is easy to discern in the literature of the Victorian era that some of its professors were apt to be haunted by the fear that their different appeal might be partly overborne or wholly silenced unless they too could prove to their generation that they, what they had to offer for its acceptance registered, something of a like superiority to the product of earlier times. The sense of inexhaustible variety, characteristic of all art that truly images the spirit of man, has by a false analogy been confused with the onward march of science, where every addition to the accumulated harvest, garnered in the past, uplifts each succeeding generation upon the shoulders of its forerunner. Art cannot compete on such terms, and any comparison so conducted must relegate its claims to an inferior place. Yet though so much may be freely confessed, it does not therefore follow that its unchanging appeal is to be counted as an unequal factor in shaping the destinies of humanity. 
The work of the man of science, however preeminent the place assigned to him in his generation, must of necessity yield place to the larger discoveries made by even the humblest of his followers. While the work of the artist, the outcome of individual vision, engaged upon the unchanging passions of man and the unfading beauty of the world he inhabits, stands secure against any assault from the future, in its nature distinct from all that has preceded it as from all that may follow in the time to come. But there are recurring seasons in the history of every art when the worker becomes unduly conscious of the medium in which he labours and correspondingly forgetful of the truth he seeks to interpret. It was this that Wordsworth had in his mind when he urged upon the poet the necessity of keeping his eye upon the object and it is not difficult to perceive how easily, in the present hour, the reiterated demand for originality, enforced by the vulgar illusion that art to be a living force must be a progressive force, invites the invasion of the charlatan. It would perhaps not be too much to say that the little corner of time we now inhabit constitutes a veritable paradise for the antics of every form of conscious imposture. But this fact, even if it be conceded, need not greatly disturb us. The patient labour of men, more worthily inspired, still survives. The more aggressive spirits in every department of art who in their haste to secure the verdict of the future, are eager to cast overboard the hoarded treasure of the past, may find when time's award comes to be recorded, and that they have won nothing but the gaping wonder of the fleeting moment. The judgment of prosperity refuses to be hustled however loud or shrill, the voices that call upon it, and we may take comfort in the thought that the whispered message, perhaps only half audible in its generation, has often been the first to win the ear of the future. There are men in every walk of life who would seem deliberately to shun the outward trappings of their calling, during his later years, when I knew Robert Browning well, it always appeared to me that he was at particular pains not to make any social appeal which could be held to rest on his claims as a poet. The homage that fell to him on that score he accepted as his due, but always, as I thought, on the implied understanding that in the daily traffic of social life the subject should not be rashly intruded. In the many and varied circles in which he moved, he made no demand of any formal tribute to the distinguished place he held in the world of letters, and it was sometimes matter for wonder to those who met him constantly 
to note with what apparently eager and sincere interest he entered into the discussion of any trivial topic in which it was not supposed to be that he could have been very deeply concerned. Like Lord Byron, whose gifts as a poet be held in no great esteem, he was rather anxious at any rate in the earliest stages of acquaintanceship that his position as a poet should be regarded as a thing apart and he was apt, I think, to be embarrassed by any persistent endeavour to penetrate the outward shard of the man of the world wherein he preferred to render himself easily accessible to a wide circle of friends few of whom would have deemed themselves competent to enter into any sustained discussions of literary topics. Among the painters of his time, Malay would, I think, have owned to a like inclination. Neither in his personality nor in his bearing was he at any pains to announce himself to the world as an artist. And if not in his earlier days, at any rate at the time, I first began to know him. He seemed to seek by preference the comradeship of men whose distinction had been won in another field. In self-esteem, he was certainly at no time lacking. He could accept in full measure praise of his own work from whatever quarter it came and in that respect he differed from Browning, whose nature seemed to stand in less need of flattery, or even of expressed appreciation. On occasion, indeed, and with only moderate encouragement, Malay could be beguiled into a confession of confident faith in his own powers that might sometimes seem to border on arrogance, but at the worst it was no more than the arrogance of an overgrown boy, put forward with such genuine conviction as to rob it of all offence. At these times he would give you the impression that, having won the top place in his class, he intended to hold it. He could not readily endure the thought, or even the suspicion, that there was anybody qualified to supplant him and he was apt to be impatient and even restive when other claims were advanced as though he felt the world was wasting time till it reached the consideration of what he was genuinely convinced was a higher manifestation of arctic power and yet the judgments upon himself, even when they were delivered in the most buoyant and conquering spirit, never left the savour of pretentious vanity. There was an air of impartiality that I think was genuine, even when his self-esteem was most emphatically expressed, as though he were recording the award of a higher tribunal, in whose verdict his own personality was in no way involved. 
And then there was so much that was immediately lovable in this man himself, as distinguished from the artist. I have heard it said by an older friend, who knew him in the season of his youth, that when, as a mere boy, he quitted the schools of the academy to begin the practice of his art, he had the face and form of an Adonis, and his handsome and commanding presence when I first met him. Toward the close of the seventies, a man then nearing fifty years of age made it easy to believe that this record of charm of his youthful appearance was in no way exaggerated. And yet the frank outlook of the face with its clear blue eyes and firm yet finely modelled mouth though it spoke clearly of power and resource, and betrayed in every changing mood of expression the unconquerable optimism of a nature that retained its full vitality to the last did not, I think then, or at any time, yield any decisive indication of the direction in which his gifts were employed. Afterwards I learned to find in his features the true index of the finer qualities of his genius. But at our first encounter, it seemed to me rather that I stood in the presence of a robust personality that had been bred and nurtured in the free air of the country. It was always indeed easier to think of him as one of a happy and careless company during those annual fishing and shooting holidays in which he so greatly delighted than to picture him a prisoner in a London studio arduously applying himself to the problems of his art and in point of fact he always brought something of that sense of breezy outdoor life into the spacious studio at Palace Gate. Perhaps if he could have followed his own inclination, he would have passed a greater part of his life on the banks of the Northern River that he loved so well. Quite in the later years of his life, when he was rebuking his old friend and comrade, Holman Hunt, upon a too obstinate indifference to the taste of this time, he said to him, Why, if I were to go on like that, I should never have been able to go away in the autumn to fish and shoot. You take my advice, old boy, and just take the world as it is and don't make it your business to rub up people the wrong way. Malay's ready acquiescence in the demands of his generation was to some extent an element of weakness in his artistic character, leading him occasionally, as he more than once confessed to me himself, into the errors of taste that he was afterwards shrewd enough to detect and candid enough to deplore. 
but however far he may on occasion have been led astray towards a certain triviality in choice of subject, this tendency never impunged or injured his integrity as a painter in the chosen task he had set himself to accomplish. The presence of nature, either in human face or form, or in the facts of the external world, proved a tonic that sufficed to restore his artistic conscience, and I do not think he was ever satisfied by the exercise of any acquired facility, for it was both the strength and the weakness of his art that his ultimate success in any particular adventure largely depended upon the inspiration supplied by his model. One day, we were talking of technique, and I remember Millet, who was at the time in some trouble with a portrait that he could not get to his satisfaction, roundly declared that, for an artist worth the name, there was no such thing as technique. Look at me now, he said. I can't get this face right and it had been the same with me all through my life. With every fresh subject, I have to learn my art all over again. Such a confession came well from a man who, from the earliest time of his precious and marvellous boyhood, had, in the native gifts of a painter, clearly outpaced and outdistanced the most accomplished of his contemporaries, and yet it was made in no spirit of mock modesty, but out of a clear conviction that an artist's conflict with nature is ceaseless and unending, no matter what degree of mastery the world may choose to accord him. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you're feeling drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to read another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.